Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name's Jessica Davis, and I'm here with Michael Nesbitt. We're going to flip the script a little bit, and Mike's going to ask me about questions on uh, terrorist financing and counter-terrorist financing. So I'm here with Jessica Davis, president and founder of Insight Threat Intelligence, and longtime financial intelligence professional, who, of course, is well-known to Intrepid podcast listeners. And Jessica, you have a fascinating new article in Lawfare blog, it's a blog post, which talks about counterterrorism financing. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this blog post, maybe get into some of the more grainy details, and also get a little background as to why you wrote it, how Canada is doing specifically. So let me start with this. It seems to me that our listeners might be interested in how, when, and where counterterrorism financing investigations and enforcement happen. So just some of the background as to what we're talking about when we say counterterrorism financing investigations or enforcement. Oh, so an easy question to start. It's really complicated, and it depends entirely on the jurisdiction that we're talking about. So internationally, we have an international convention to suppress terrorist financing. So basically the idea is that terrorist actors, you know, it could be groups, cells, or individuals need money to do a bunch of different things, you know, to procure weapons, to support their organizations, to conduct attacks, to recruit people, to travel, to join terrorist organizations. And all of the financial components of that activity constitute terrorist financing. So there are international conventions and norms now to prevent that, to try to stop of terrorists from being able to gain access to financial resources to do a whole bunch of those different things. Most countries in the world now have counter-terrorist financing legislation on the books. Fewer countries have any successful prosecutions of terrorist financing. And Canada is one of those countries that has very few, as you well know, prosecutions of terrorist financing. So the other layer of this is that Terrorist financing investigations happen in a number of different organizations and agencies. So it could be done through security services. So in Canada, CSIS could technically investigate aspects of terrorist financing under threats to the security of Canada. The RCMP obviously has the criminal aspect that they could investigate. In other countries, financial intelligence units may have a law enforcement mandate, and they could be the ones leading on counter-terrorist financing investigations. That's not the case in Canada because Canada's financial intelligence unit is administrative in structure, so it provides information to investigations but doesn't conduct its own investigations. So you can see how every single jurisdiction has their own sort of structure and way to do this. Great. And that's that's FinTrack we're talking about is the administrative agency, is that correct? Yes. And when you talk about FinTrack and CSIS and the laws on the books that we have here, what are we talking about in Canada? Are we talking mostly criminal laws or? Yeah, so it's all of our terrorist financing laws are under the Criminal Code of Canada, and it's all through that uh, section 83.03 in the Criminal Code of Canada. So it's all under our terrorism provisions. So it all lives there. You know, technically, I guess, other law enforcement agencies could also be investigating terrorist financing, but in practice, this happens primarily at the federal level. Great. And so you might say, and this is interesting to to your blog post, you might say Canada's taken a very criminal-centric approach to countering terrorist financing, at least at least from what you've discussed. You've talked about agencies that I normally associate maybe with the criminal side of things sometimes, RCMP in particular, and, and then obviously with the criminal code. Is that is that fairly accurate then? 
Yeah. And so we've only unpacked the criminalization of terrorist financing, which is one of, I think, about seven different ways to combat terrorist financing. So obviously criminalizing it and investigating and prosecuting individuals who are involved in that is one approach to counter-terrorist financing. Another approach is what I like to call the intelligence approach. So basically exploiting financial intelligence to understand the networks and connections between individuals who are involved in terrorist activity. This is a long-standing approach to counter-terrorist financing that predates um, the terrorist attacks of 9-11 and the, all of, and sort of those international norms that I was talking about. And a lot of states have used this. In particular, the UK has used it against um, dissidents in Northern Ireland. And Israel has also made excellent use of financial intelligence in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. So there's a long tradition to this. A lot of countries around the world do it. But there are other approaches as well. And so these are also worth a brief mention. So there's the military approach to counter-terrorist financing, which basically involves targeted strikes against potentially cash storage sites, as we saw in Iraq and Syria during the height of the Islamic State, but it could also involve covert action and targeted killings of financiers and important financial figures within terrorist organizations. But there's also the sanctions or financial exclusion approach, which we've already talked about in, in detail when we talked about sanctions. And that sort of allows states to essentially prevent individuals who they believe to be involved in terrorist activity from accessing the financial sector. The financial system prevents them from accessing their own money, making transactions, that kind of thing. And then there's also a huge component of this is the regulatory and private sector approach, which makes basically every company in Canada that's involved in financial activity a mandatory reporting entity that has to report suspicious transactions to FinTrack, our financial intelligence unit. There's a lot there. The last approach that I want to talk about is the civil law approach, where individuals will sometimes sue financial institutions, so banks or money service businesses, for providing financial services to terrorist entities. So as you can see, there's a lot of different approaches that actually form part of the counter-terrorist financing, uh, counter financing practice. We mostly focus on criminalization and the regulatory approach, and to a lesser extent, intelligence, but there's a lot more going on under the surface. Great. That is a wonderful background. So, so my follow-up then is if we have all these sort of different approaches and Canada seems to have taken a very criminal centric, but some of the others sound like they might work. It gets me into a bit of a confusion I've had over the last couple of years as a lawyer trying to track the experts in, in the field who are really doing this work and trying to figure out how you get financial intelligence, how you make use of it. What I feel like I have read Simultaneously seems to be true that counterterrorism financing work is absolutely imperative to society and government's work to, to of course, counterterrorism. And as though right now, many are dismissing it as sort of out of date and lacking in utility as a tool to really act to counterterrorism financing. So what I'm interested in is with respect to your piece, you know, where do you fall on this? Uh, why did you think it was time to address this issue? And, and, and what were your interests in, in jumping into the fray here? I'll start with the critiques of counter-terrorist financing. And, you know, I don't really have a very firm view. Just, it, it may seem a bit strange for me to say that as a counter-terrorist financing professional, that I don't actually 
have strong views on whether or not it's useful or that it works because in part there's very little evidence so i know from my own practical work that there's utility in financial intelligence that when you restrict a terrorist actor's access to money, it generally forces them to downscale their plans. It can constrain an organization's ability to do a number of different things, but I actually can't prove any of that. So there's no empirical evidence that I can point to and set that says, this is how this works and we should all be doing it. I know it, I believe it from my own practice, but that's a really different thing from being able to prove it. The second thing that I'll say about that is that a lot of the critiques of counter-terrorist financing have been relatively misguided. They've really focused on very narrow aspects of counter-terrorist financing, often on that criminalization piece or on the intelligence piece. Now, I think that there's valid criticisms on the criminalization piece when you look at how few uh, arrests, prosecutions, and convictions we've had, especially in countries like Canada. Um, other countries you could point to much greater success. But the critiques about when you look at the things like the intelligence approach, you know, you run into a problem very quickly. It's that if we're talking about intelligence, a lot of the results of that are going to be classified or maybe not even counted, depending on how organizations are doing their metrics. So we have an evidence problem there as well. So the critique is demanding evidence from of intelligence operations. And you know that's really not ever gonna be a thing that happens or most of the time isn't gonna happen. So we need to look for other measures of success and effectiveness. So from my perspective, you know, I do think that it's useful, but I do think we also need to be doing a lot more to demonstrate that it's effectiveness, especially when we're forcing every country in the world to adopt counter-terrorist financing legislation and encouraging them to do terrorist financing practices. So this might be a good opportunity for you to just jump into your lawfare piece and tell us a little bit about what it is that you think broadly you're addressing in this piece. Yeah, I think the crux of this piece is really coming from my observation of what I would describe as extremist movements. So when I started in this field, I was doing a lot of work on you know, the named groups that have a fairly coherent structure. So Al-Shabaab, Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State in Iraq and Levant, eventually, all of these groups that, you know, they're listed terrorist entities. We understand the parameters of them. You can point to ways in which they finance their activities. But increasingly, and over the course of my career, I've also started to see individuals who are inspired by those kinds of groups taking action. And they didn't necessarily have any physical or logistical connection to those groups. So we'd call them lone actors in some co contexts, although I think that that's a bit of a misstatement just because none of them really act alone. And when I looked at their financing, I was seeing something very different. So it, it really occurred to me, and this is something that I've done throughout the course of my career, is we need to look at different levels of actors when we talk about counter-terrorist financing. So we need to look at organizations, so those groups. We need to look at cells that are perpetrating attacks. And we also need to look at individuals who are inspired by those groups. But now with the rise of things like the incel movement, QAnon, Boogaloo Boys, a number of different, what I would, for lack of a better way of describing them, term extremist movements, um, we need to understand that activity and, and, and think about how to counter the financing of extremist movements in a bit of a different way 
while also still drawing on how we've learned to understand those so-called lone actors, because that's kind of where we're seeing that terrorism element when individuals who sort of follow or believe in those ideologies take violent action. That's where it sort of crosses over into that terrorism space. So we need to be reconceptualizing how we think of those tools, broadening out how we're using them, um, because not every country in the world or every country that's affected by these different types of terrorism and extremism has the same tools and capabilities. Yeah, this is one of the things that I just find most fascinating about both this piece and, and your work in general, which is we're seeing this huge movement now, and it's not necessarily new. I mean, you know, in the far right, it's for a long time, the quote unquote lone actor was was literally part of the planned group activity, right? So not lone actors in that you're friends on the internet or you're talking, you know, at meetings, but you but you're not you're not the IRA where you have multiple people living in the same house and sort of engaging. You don't get a calling card that says you're part of the group. So you seem more like a lone actor, but you're still working with others and with technology that's just becoming easier and easier. And it's a problem I think across certainly I see it in criminal law where we're struggling to move away from that sort of group-centric conception of criminalization, counterterrorism, et cetera, and towards how you deal with, how you prosecute, for example, some of these groups. So I, I, I think that what you're starting to get at here and a lot of this thinking that you're doing is, is really cross-cutting analysis, right? It could be really relevant, not just to counterterrorism financing, but how we conceptualize counterterrorism work from beginning to sort of seeding an investigation right up to the prosecution which is a fascinating thing. And so it, it brings me to if, if we need this kind of thinking across the board, and as you're saying convincingly, you've, you've made the case, I think, that we need it in counterterrorism financing. Do you have specific recommendations for you know, sort of next steps in terms of this thinking or how agencies uh, might be even researching how they could do this better or, or maybe for our students out there, what, what research they might be thinking about? I like the lawfare piece because I got to point out a lot of problems, but I didn't, wasn't really forced to come up with many solutions. So I think the first issue that we've got really here is a definitional issue. So we need to be very clear when we're talking about extremist movements, terrorist actors, and specifically what kind of terrorist actor, because, you know, the term extreme right is really imprecise to me. You know, I much prefer to be much more specific in terms of what their ideology actually is. It also creates a lot of political problems that I think we can best avoid. So we need to be very clear in our definitions when we talk about that. We also need to think very critically about how organizations and movements, cells and individuals who are involved with that, how they are actually financing their activities and what we should be doing to counter them. So there's a lot of very high level, I would say, recommendations in terms of how to do that, that don't necessarily tie in directly to evidence and practice in terms of terrorist and extremist movements. So, you know, for instance, something that I'm working on right now is I'm looking at the exploitation of digital platforms by terrorist actors to finance their activities. So, you know, looking at things like Amazon CreateSpace or even uh, financial technology companies like PayPal to move money or um, eBay to sell goods and propaganda. So how are terrorist actors and extremist actors, because they may be extremists before they actually become terrorists, how are they exploiting those platforms to raise money and to finance other aspects of terrorist activity and is that falling through the cracks of our legislation and regulations? Because when you think about it, 
It's financial activity that's taking place on digital platforms that are not regulated through our anti-money laundering counter-tariffs financing legislation. The payment providers who may be providing the services behind the scenes are, but do they have the same level of information that the actual digital platforms have? And then the digital platforms are being pressured to remove terrorist and extremist content through international consortiums of interested parties like the GIF-CT and Tech Against Terrorism, but are they looking at the financing component as well? So there's a lot of, I guess we, I would call them transboundary policy problems in this space that really need to be resolved. And to do that, we have to have very clear definitions and good evidence of what it is we're looking for. Okay, so at one point in the piece, you critique the way the international community thinks about counterterrorism financing and say in specifically, and I quote, it is out of date. And so I'm wondering what specifically you mean by that. And if you have any thoughts about how we could bring it up to date. Yeah, so I think at that particular moment in the piece, I was really thinking about what I call the mechanisms of terrorist financing. So you would have heard me say it a number of times in this interview that I talk about raising funds and maybe the use of funds. And that's really the extent to most people's conceptualization of terrorist financing, the terrorists raise and use money. But actually they do a lot of other things with money too. So we need to be broadening out our understanding of what terrorist financing is. So it's about raising money certainly through donations, through state sponsors, whatever, using money to buy weapons and components, all that kind of stuff, but also how they move it. So is it through banks? Is it through Hawala? Is it through money service businesses like Western Union, PayPal, like I mentioned? How are they hiding it? So what kind of trade craft are they using? How are they managing their money? Because my research has found that most terrorist organizations, but also cells, have some sort of money manager that are involved and how they're storing and investing that money for future use, because that's a key component for a lot of terrorist organizations' longevity. So I think the field of terrorist financing has really suffered by narrowly conceiving of terrorist financing as raising or using money, when it's much more about um, a number of other mechanisms or activities are involved there. Yeah, and I think in the piece, what is clear to me is that when you say it's much broader than just raising or using money, that also means that the type of intelligence that you could garner from a broader conception could be much broader as well, right? And so this brings us back to the what we talked about at the beginning, which is Canada has a very criminal-centric approach. But the implication to me is you're, you're quite critical of a criminal-centric approach and see the need to move, and that's not to say it doesn't have a criminal component, but to move far beyond that. And so I guess I'm wondering what you think the implications are for Canada in particular, and, and maybe just a reiteration of where you see us moving beyond that criminal-centric approach. Yeah, and so when I think about moving beyond a criminal-centric approach, I really think about encouraging investigators, and I do most of my work internationally now, so, you know, with with different countries, encouraging them to think about money as something that can explain what's happening in a terrorist cell or group that really speaks very directly to their capabilities. So if we take an example of uh, a terrorist plot, you know, they may have the plan to build a really big bomb and blow something up. But if they can't get enough money to buy the components for that bomb, they're going to have to 
downscale their plans. And as a security or intelligence service, you're going to be able to see that and say, okay, they don't have enough money to do what it is they're doing. So they're probably going to shift their plan and maybe quickly to something else entirely. So it really speaks to their planning and preparation and capabilities. Now, of course, there's always the opportunity aspect of that, that terrorists may try to take sort of relatively spontaneous um, advantage of an opportunity that presents itself. But most of the time, they still need to acquire some kind of good or weapon to do what it is they want to do, even if it's a relatively simple attack. So understanding what their financial situation is speaks to all of those kinds of things. Now for Canada, I have the, I've had the privilege, obviously, of working very closely with a lot of our investigators and financial intelligence professionals. And the nice thing is, is that I know that they understand this and I know that they apply this in their own investigations. What I think we need to do next is really demonstrate that understanding by bringing some successful prosecutions. So, you know, it's obviously very difficult and I don't want to wish more terrorism on Canada, but in future incidents, I'd really like to see Canada pushing the boundaries of where we can go with the terrorist financing charge, in addition to other charges um, brought against individuals, because there's almost certainly going to be a financial component to most of the kind of stuff that we're looking at. So that's sort of the place where I'd like to see. And I think that if we did that, we'd be very well positioned to be actual leaders in this space. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And so as a reminder, we have over 30 now prosecutions and of, of individuals anyways, and yet we only have these two cases where charges were brought. And one was the first one, R versus Kawaja, and it was basically a throwaway. I mean, it was, it was hardly considered by the court. It seemed to be sort of tacked on at the end. I think it's not unfair to say. And then we have one other case, R versus Thambathurai, and, and that's it. And yet you have done some fascinating work. And it made me think that we could, I could go to you with almost any criminal case and say, have a look at the background and you will come back to me with significant, <laughs> if this one piece you've written is any indication, evidence that terrorist financing played an important role. And, and in fact, probably could have been charged in some of these cases and yet we're not seeing it. So that's a, a fascinating recommendation. I will end here with a thank you, Jess, for the illuminating discussion on counter terrorism financing, something I think that is both really, really interesting and somehow under-discussed. So I'm glad you're sort of forcing our hand on the discussion here in Canada and hopefully continued improvements. And I'd encourage any listeners out there to go ha have a peek at the Lawfare blog piece, because I, I found it fascinating. And, and I think something we're not seeing enough of in Canada and, and are happy to see you leading the way on. So thank you, Jess. Thanks so much, Mike. It was a real pleasure to talk about this topic with you.